0: So today we are continuing through the Gospel of John. Uh, We're going to spend a lot of time in John chapter 10. You can go ahead and turn there if you would like. Um, Last week, Pastor Tyler uh, taught through the first half of John chapter 10, and so I'm going to teach through the second half of John chapter 10 this morning. As you are turning, though, I'm going to draw your attention to uh, John chapter 1. You don't have to turn there but just as a way to set the context for the message today and really the context for the writing uh, itself of the Gospel of John, we see that uh, the first few verses in John chapter 1 uh, provide a a prologue or an introduction to the book itself. And so let me just read a couple verses to you from John chapter 1 that, that sets the trajectory really of what we're talking about today. John 1 verses 9 through 12, just listen to it. It says, "...the true light which gives light to everyone..." was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. And so throughout the Gospel of John, we see this, these themes of belief and rejection. We see this uh, traced through many stories, many examples many of what John calls signs or what we would call miracles. And uh, that theme continues really from John, uh, John chapter 1, verse 19, right after the introduction, through the ending of John chapter 10. And so uh, what I want to help us understand today is that we're, we're really, when we get done with the sermon today, having read through all of John chapter 10, we're really in an important transition in the book itself because this is really the last aspect of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, John chapter 11 is more of a private meeting, right? He raises Lazarus, right? That, that's not hopefully a spoiler alert. You can read ahead if you want to. We encourage you to do that. Uh, so this really is the end of his public ministry. And so as he's coming to the end of this three to three and a half years of public ministry, what is on Jesus' mind? What is on the mind of John, the uh, the apostle, as he writes this, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Like, what, what do they want us to know? What, what does the Holy Spirit want us to know? What is God wants us to know what does the writer John want us to know, and I find that very interesting that he wants to make sure that we have solidified in our mind who Jesus really is. So, this message today uh, should have multiple points, I suppose, but really there's one point of the message, and that is, who is Jesus? And so, as we look at that today, uh, I I want us to kind of let that sink in. Uh, Most of us, I think, would say that we have a good understanding who Jesus is. Uh, John chapter 10, the first half of that chapter that we went over last week, Pastor Tyler taught on a couple comments about who Jesus is. John chapter 10, verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, to kill and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. John chapter 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus sets the context of who he is by these statements, and in, in what we talk about today, he continues basically that conversation and that theme of talking about who he is. So, Um, uh, What we're looking at in John chapter 10, verses 22 through 42, happens about one to two months after the first half of John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. So it's about two months later. Let me read to you this passage of Scripture, then we'll pray and talk through it. So John chapter 10, 22 through 42, again about two months after Jesus finishes Jesus answered them, "'I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me?' The Jews answered, "'It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God.'" Jesus answered them, "'Is it not written in your law, I said you were gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the Scripture cannot be broken.'" Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Or am I not doing the works of my Father? Even do not believe me, but if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Verse 40, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, to him, "And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. Verse 42, and many believed in him there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you took the initiative to reveal yourself to us through your word. God, may we sit under the authority of your word this morning. May uh, this message be a faithful demonstration of the word, God. May you work in our hearts, and may we be obedient and responsive to that work. Uh, Bring conviction where needed. Bring encouragement where needed. God, I pray that this fellowship would be known as a church body, God, who loves you and loves others, proclaims a gospel message through what we do and what we say. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, as I said, I, I, I suppose I'm supposed to have three points because that's what they teach in a homiletics class. Uh, I, just, I, I just have one point, okay? And it's this. In the last recorded interactions of his public ministry, okay, last recorded interactions of the public ministry, Jesus affirms his equality with the Father. The, the last thing he wants to make sure people understand is that he is equal to the Father, Put another way, Jesus and the Father are one. That's the title of the message today. And then, why is this important? Well, last week we celebrated Easter. Uh, Thankfully, we don't have to wait another 51 weeks to celebrate Easter, right? We can celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus every moment of every day. But the significance of Jesus being equal to the Father is that if God did not die on the cross, you were still in your sins. Okay, so Jesus... Is preparing, he knows this, right? He knows all things. He is preparing uh, for the rest of the Gospel of John, right? So, about half of the Gospel of John is Jesus' public ministry. About half of the Gospel of John, if you look at the number of chapters, is really about the last week of his life. Uh, like I said, John chapter 11, uh, healing of Lazarus, John chapter 12 through 20, really the events of the last week of his life. You'll see that uh, he enters into the city, it's a triumphal entry, and by the end of that week, he's crucified. Uh, John chapter 21, then, is a post-resurrection appearance to the disciples and some interactions with them. But it's as though Jesus really wants to make sure we understand who it is who will be delivered up and crucified on our behalf and who it is who will rise from the dead. It is God himself. Uh, I remember uh, having an interview question when I was interviewing for faculty, and a seasoned theology professor said, Gabe, did, did God die on the cross? I was like, um... What, what, what do you mean by God? What, what did you mean by die? Uh, anyways, by the end of the conversation, he, he uh, gently but, but uh, correctly said, if Jesus is God and death took place, then God literally died on the cross. Right? And so that is what we affirm as a church body, and that is what uh, the point of this passage is. So what I want to do is just walk through some of the key aspects of that passage, but keep that in mind that Jesus is claiming to be equal with the Father, and the significance of that is that God died in our place. So, uh, let's go there to verse 22. It says, uh, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. I want to spend just a couple minutes talking about the Feast of Dedication. If I would ask you to turn in the Old Testament to the institution of the Feast of Dedication... Uh, Some of you would start to turn and look for maybe passages in the Old Testament, maybe in the Pentateuch, but you would look in vain because the Feast of Dedication actually does not come out of the Old Testament. Uh, We do know that there are some feasts in the Old Testament that were commanded. Uh, Probably the most popular one, the one that we know the most, is the uh, Feast of Passover, right? The significance of Passover. If you remember what that related to, it was the Exodus where the children of Israel come out of the land of Egypt and uh, the, the events surrounding that, and so there's a celebration every year of Passover. You also have the Feast of Weeks. Uh, we know this as Pentecost, and so in the New Testament, it talks about Pentecost. In the Old Testament, there's this command to remember the Feast of Weeks. This was a celebration that happened 50 days after Passover, again, instituted in the Old Testament, really celebrating God's provision uh, at the beginning of the wheat harvest, And then the third major festival or feast that we see in the Old Testament is the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles, Um, and that is uh, remembering God's faithfulness as the nation of Israel came out of Egypt, and uh, although they wandered around for quite a few years, right, but the faithfulness of God, so living in booths, actually for the Feast of Tabernacle or Feast of Booths, uh, you will see that uh, they're commanded to live kind of in a tent or a booth, Uh, For about a week, and so uh, that is a festival or a feast that they commemorate. The Feast of Dedication is different. All right, some of you might know what it is, others may not, but the Feast of Dedication actually uh, was instituted during the intertestamental period. Now, I'm not going to try to go too far with this, but we have the Old Testament, we have about 400 years where we don't have any scripture, okay, and then we have the New Testament. So uh, during that 400 years, of course, they were relying on the Old Testament and those scriptures, but we don't have God's spoken word as um, uh, inspired during that time. But during that time, in the mid-160s BC, you have uh, a a king who comes in, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, all right? You don't have to memorize that name, but you could use it in conversation this week. People will be impressed, right? He comes in, he conquers Jerusalem. And what he does is he offers a pig on the altar in the temple, okay? Now, if you remember, pig would be un- unholy, right? It, it, uh, uh, it would be an unclean animal, right? So he offers this pig on the altar, um, a sacrifice to a pagan god, right? Of course, the people of Israel are not happy about this. Their, their temple has been desecrated. Uh, the city has been taken over, Um, the Maccabees, all right? You maybe heard of Maccabees. uh, They actually lead a revolt to push them out of the city of Jerusalem, and they rededicate the temple, all right? So, the Feast of Dedication is also known as the Feast of Lights, and it's also known as Hanukkah, right? So, you're like, oh, okay, that's what that is. So, around Christmas time, uh, you know, Jewish families would celebrate Hanukkah. Um, we as Christians would celebrate Christmas, but it is that feast that they are remembering. Now, commentators are a little bit torn whether that's a significant point or not. I've spent a few minutes talking about it. I think it's significant for a couple reasons, okay? Understanding the context of what is going on as Jesus is talking about who he is, I think is important. So first, I think the main, one of the main reasons is that this is a celebration of the rededication of the temple, Uh, Think for a moment of the significance of the temple in the life of the Israelites, in the Jewish life, right? The temple is the centerpiece of the Jewish life. Uh, Their their, their world kind of revolves around that. That is where they meet with God. Literally, the high priest would go in once a year in the Day of Atonement to make atonement for the sins of the nation, right? And so this feast commemorates, it celebrates the purification of the temple. It's the very place where the Israelites would meet and worship God, okay? Let that sink in for a moment. Remember who it is that the Jews are talking to at the temple and having this conversation with, right? So, the dedication of the temple. Secondly, and I think it becomes very important for our conversation. Secondly, uh, when the Maccabees led this revolt, the nation of Israel then experienced independence for about hundred years. This is the mid 60s BC up till the mid, uh, sorry, mid 160s BC up to the mid 60s BC, where they experienced relative peace, where they didn't have another nation over them. Throughout the uh, the the first century, the mindset of what the Messiah would do would be: the Messiah will do what Moses did for us. Moses led us out of captivity and into the promised land. What will the Messiah do? The Messiah will also lead us out of captivity and establish kind of Israel as a nation at that time. And so the view of what the Messiah would be doing would be similar to what the Maccabees did, which was lead them to independence, right? They were under Roman rule, Roman oppression during this time. And so in that backdrop is where we have this interaction between Jesus and the Jews. Okay, so let's look back to our passage here. It says Jesus, verse 23, was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Verse 24, it says that the uh, Jews gathered around him and said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you were the Christ, tell us plainly. At first, this might seem like a very honest, very sincere question, and if you really look through the gospel of John and say, well, what didn't Jesus make, make public professions of his messiahship? The answer would actually be no, not specifically. All right, so to his disciples, he talked about being the messiah. In like uh, John chapter 4, the woman at the well, he talked about being the messiah, but he had not made explicit statements about being the messiah. Now, uh, you, you know what Jesus' answer is, and, and we'll look at that in just a minute. But a, a question would come, why did Jesus not just clearly say, hey, you've looked for the Messiah, I'm the Messiah, I'm here. Uh, R.C. Sproul, we've, we've talked about him, we've used some of his stuff before, provides an explanation. Let me read it for you because I think it's really helpful the way that he words it. And so why would Jesus not have just been very explicit with that, a messiahship earlier, all right? So, this is what he says. He says, Jesus was not being evasive to escape personal consequences. Throughout his public ministry, he was careful about using the term Messiah to describe his role. He revealed who he was privately to his disciples or to the woman at the well, for example. But when the public became too vocal in proclaiming him to be the Messiah, he resisted. He had a good reason for that. This is why. They didn't understand what it meant for him to be the Messiah. The popular view was that the Messiah would come as a warrior and drive out the hated Romans out of the land, but Jesus understood that the office of Messiah was merged in the Old Testament with the office of the servant of the Lord, of whom Isaiah writes in the latter part of his book, that one who was called the suffering servant of Israel. The people had no concept of a Messiah who would suffer and die, so Jesus was very guarded about the use of that title, particularly as the cross drew near. So I found that explanation very helpful helpful from Sproul uh, to say that the Jews in the first century considered the Messiah uh, as something that they had kind of created in their own mind, right? Now, let's press pause for a moment, lest we think, man, those Jews, man, I would never do that. (laughs) I would never create a picture of who Jesus is in my own mind and expect him to live up to those expectations. I've never done that, have I? I mean, I, I do got some issues with God sometimes because life's not working out maybe the way that I wanted it to, or situations might not work, but I, I don't, I'm not like the Jews, right? Lest we think that this is only a story about someone else it doesn't have application to our lives, I would challenge each and every one of us to say, what is our view of the Messiah or the Christ or who Jesus is, and how does that play out in our lives? And if we were really being truthful and honest, we would say, my view of Jesus and the implications of that are not always biblical, okay? So Jesus is challenging their view and making sure that their view is based on the actual Word of God. Jesus gives them a twofold answer. So let's look back at the text when he says, If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Uh, one, one translation um, actually uh, words it more like, Quit annoying us and just tell us, right? So that might be a, a more accurate, like uh, it wasn't necessarily an honest question they're asking or sincere. They're just, hey, quit quit annoying us and just plainly tell us that you're Messiah. This is what he does, though, okay? First of all, it's a twofold answer. First of all, he explains that his works point to who he says he is. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. By the works that Jesus appeals to, he is talking about the miraculous things that have happened, the miraculous things that he has done. Now, John sets up his gospel, and we've talked through this a little bit, but John sets up his gospel in such a way that he has uh, certain miracles or works that he is talking about, right, and the significance of those miracles and works. Uh, actually, if you look at them, you can make a case that they kind of escalate in, uh, uh, in severity of what is happening with the miracles, right? So he starts with turning water into wine. Uh, John chapter 11, he's going to raise a man from the dead, right? Uh, both are miracles of God. One, you would say, is a little more shocking than the other. But these works would testify to who he is. John 2, changing water into wine. John 4, healing the official son. John 5, healing the invalid. John 6, healing, uh, feeding the multitude. Further in John 6, walking on water after he did that. John chapter 9, healing of the man born blind. And then we will get to John chapter 11 when he raises a man from the dead. And so Jesus is saying, the works that I do point to who I am. But he also then secondly, okay, John chapter 10 verse 30 Jesus claims then to be equal with the Father. He said, the works testify of who I am, and oh, by the way, I and the Father are one, John 10 verse 30. Uh, Now, interestingly, uh, as we look at that and, and who Jesus is claiming to be, there have been some throughout church history who would interpret that verse to say Jesus didn't mean that he was actually equal to the Father. He would mean more that he's on the same mission as the Father, right? He has a common purpose, right? So, uh, for those of you who've studied church history, you know in the 4th century, an uh, individual named Arius who was uh, interpreting this as just Jesus being um, similar to God in the sense that they had a similar mission, but Jesus wasn't divine. Uh, a little closer to home, we would say Jehovah's Witness or Mormons have, I think, an unbiblical view of who Jesus is and the way that they would approach Jesus as divine at the same status as God the Father. Right, And so, it's not just something in the fourth century that people were dealing with. This is something even today in our generations we are dealing with and talking about who is Jesus and the significance of Jesus being equal to the Father. Uh, now, uh, what, what is also interesting, I think, to note is that the, the Jews in the first century, how do they react to Jesus' statement? Do they say, oh yeah, you and the Father are on the same mission. You kind of agree with what God is doing. We understand you to uh, come alongside God, and you want to help fulfill his mission throughout the world. Or do they say, uh, we understand you claiming to be God by what you have said? Well, the text is very clear here that verse 31 says, the Jews picked up stones uh, to stone him. This is not the first time they have done this, They have done this at other times, but they picked up stones to stone him, and Jesus then responds, I have shown you many good works, this is verse 32, from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, it's not for a good work that you are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. As I said, this is not the first time that they attempted to kill Jesus. Uh, Other times throughout the Gospels, we don't always necessarily talk through those. John chapter 5, John chapter 7, John chapter 8, uh, all were attempts to kill Jesus' life. Uh, The text is kind of funny because it basically says his time had not yet come, and because his time had not yet come, the Jews weren't able to arrest him or capture him or stone him, right? Jesus knew that his time wasn't come. Um, The Jews hadn't known that at that point, but the, 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 the significance is the Jews throughout Jesus' public ministry were seeking to kill him, seeking to arrest him, because they understood that he was claiming to be God. Um, <clears throat> there is no doubt that Jesus claimed to be God. Uh, this claim of divine status by Jesus is affirmed throughout the go- book of John, the Gospel of John. It's present in the opening statement of John's Gospel to throughout the end of John's gospel. John 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, the the whole reason for John writing his book, said Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in his book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the whole point of the writing. So you say, why do we keep coming back to that? Because the gospel of John <laughs> keeps coming back to that. Okay, so let's um, not put the text aside, but let's uh, look at the implications for this. So New City Catechism, right? We have been using New City Catechism um, that we go through each week. Uh, this week we did question 15, I think. I'm going to fast forward eight weeks, all right? So I want us to look at New City Catechism 23, question 23. And um, there is a kind of a more children's version. Is it right to say it that way? Uh, And then there's one that has a fuller explanation. I'm going to give the fuller answer. But the question for New City Catechism is, question 23, is why must the Redeemer be truly God? Okay? There's a question, why must he be truly human? Why must the Redeemer be truly God? And this is the answer given. Okay? It's a little bit expanded, but it's not that long. That because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. Okay, That because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. And also, that he would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. Read it one more time. That because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective and also that he would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. Jesus, okay, so that's the answer. So what does that mean? It means Jesus must be God because only God can provide permanent atonement for sin. He's the only one, right? We we, we celebrated Easter last week. Hopefully you have wrestled through the question, could, could have there been another way, right? Could, could have God provided salvation another way? Couldn't, couldn't God just made a decree like, uh, you know, these people are saved, right? Or everybody's saved. Or those people were saved. Like, couldn't God have just done that without going through the cross? And the answer is, if you study the Old Testament, um, if, if you look throughout the New Testament and the significance of what Christ did and the understanding of the sacrificial system, understanding of the fall in the garden, and that even in the garden, animals sacrificed, understanding that there, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins, but who will permanently atone, right? Not a temporary atonement, but a permanent atonement. The writer of Hebrews talks about this, that it's a once-for-all offering. And so God had to die in our place is the significance of our sin. That's, that's how bad our sin really is That God had to die in our place. And so hopefully that sinks in with us. And as you're reading through the Gospel of John, understanding what has come before this passage and understanding what we're getting to, the importance of that understanding as we then look uh, over the next few months really at the, the last week of Jesus's life. So let's go back to our text then. You say, well, he affirms in verse 30 that he and the Father are one. Verse 31, the Jews pick up stones. They want to uh, uh, stone him. Verse 32, Jesus says, why are you going to stone me? Uh, What good work are you going to stone me for? They they answer in 33, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you being a man, um, make yourself out to be God. Keep that in mind, underline that verse, right? Later on in John's gospel, Okay? At his trial, when they're handing him over to Roman authorities, what is the charge they bring about uh, against him? This is the charge that they bring against him. He, as a man, makes himself out to be God. The Roman authorities don't quite understand that at the time uh, or the significance of that, but that is the charge they bring against him. So, in light of all that, what is Jesus' response there to their accusation that he is claiming to be God? We're going to read 34 uh, through... Um, through uh, thirty nine, uh, and and I well through thirty eight right now, but I'll admit like the, the, this passage when I first read it, I'm like, what is Jesus doing here? I don't I don't get it. This is kind of confusing. Is he trying to do a play on words? Uh, I don't think that he is. I'm going to explain it, but let's read it one more time. All right, thirty four. Jesus answered to them, "It is uh, is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken." Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. This verse 34 is a reference back to Psalm 82. The significance of that is he is asking the Jews to, hey, remember what's written in your own scriptures, okay? So this is the, the, the very word of God explaining the word of God to the unbelieving Jews, which is somewhat ironic. But Psalm 82, we're not going to turn there, but Psalm 82, uh, it, it calls humans gods, little g, okay? Not big g gods, little g, because humanity represents God judges on behalf of God to some degree. I I think it's actually traced back to being created in the image of God, and we represent God to his creation. So Jesus is appealing back to Psalm 82 and the fact that the psalmist calls humanity gods with a little g because they represent God to God's creation and sit in judgment. I don't believe it's a trick. I don't believe he's trying to um, you, you know, uh, use words to deceive the Jews by any means, because he then goes on to kind of double down what he had said earlier, that he and the Father is one, are, are one. Verses 35 through 37 don't allow for an interpretation of Jesus playing word games. Uh, it, it, it's as though Jesus is saying, if the term God, little g, can be used of humanity, who acts as judges over God's creation then it could also be used of the one who was actually sanctified and sent from God. That's what he says in the text, that uh, verse 36, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated, he's talking of himself, consecrated or sanctified and sent into the world, you're blaspheming. So, you don't say it of humanity, why would you then not allow me to say it of the one whom God actually sent. One commentator said it this way: He's arguing from the less, okay, humanity to the greater. He's not placing himself on a level with men. He's actually setting himself apart from them. I'm actually the one consecrated and sent from God. Why could I not use that term? Notice also, Jesus ends the answer uh, to the Jews by saying, verse thirty-eight, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. He once again claims a unique relationship with God, the Father. The Jews respond to that in verse 39, and it says, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So, the first century Jews were very aware of what Jesus was claiming of himself and the significance of that. So, this is kind of the recap. Jesus claims to be God. The Jews want to kill him. Jesus then quotes the Old Testament. Further claims to be God because humans are referred to with little g-gods in the Old Testament, but Jesus was sent from the Father and really is God, and the Jews respond by wanting to arrest him. They, they had no doubt in their mind what Jesus was doing. At this point, then, Jesus leaves Jerusalem. Again, in some ways, he, he won't really be back until uh, we, we see kind of that final week of his life and all the events that surround that final week of his life. And some of us might uh, be led to believe, okay, well, um, you know, what does this mean, right? Is all hope lost? There's no one believing in him. But of course, we know John chapter 10, 40 through 42 provides significant hope for us. So let's turn once again to 40 through 42. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Uh, Hope is not lost. This is a much needed contrast, as we see throughout John's gospel, of those who are unbelieving. Why? Because they don't know the shepherd. They don't hear his voice. He doesn't know them. They have not believed. And those who do believe, who are his sheep, who do respond to the good shepherd. Uh, It begs the question, though, a little bit of, okay, if they say they appeal to John the Baptist, verse 41, John did no sign, but everything he said about this man was true. What did John the Baptist say about Jesus? Okay? Again, this is Jesus' last public ministry times. Let's turn to John chapter 3, because in John chapter 3, we get a pretty clear statement of what John the Baptist said about Jesus. So, if they believe through what John said and explain about Jesus, maybe we can believe about who Jesus is through what John the Baptist says. As you're turning, remember, okay, turn to John chapter 3. We're going to read uh, starting verse 28. But John chapter 1 actually records some statements about John the Baptist, and it says, um, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what he says of Jesus. And he also calls Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 34, the Son of God. So we know from the very start that John the Baptist has a very high view of who Jesus is. But John chapter 3, we're going to start uh, in, in verse 28. there's in the midst of a conversation between John the Baptist and his disciples. And this is what John the Baptist says. Concerning Jesus. Verse 28, John chapter 3 You yourselves bear witness, uh, sorry, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and, bear, uh, and hears him. He rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, his joy, this joy of mine, is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Verse 31 He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal on him that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives a spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not Obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I think it's worth noting at the end of Jesus' public ministry that one of the first individuals to publicly profess that Jesus is Christ was John the Baptist, proclaiming the way, making the way for the Messiah to come, right? Publicly proclaiming that Jesus was the Christ, that he was not, but that Jesus was, and that eternal life was offered through him. So, Again, what is the point of the the message today? In the last recorded interactions of his public ministry, Jesus affirms his equality with the Father, and that's important because if God did not die on the cross, we are still in our sins. I want to kind of close with uh, the devotional thought from the New City Catechism that further explains why must the Redeemer be truly God. Uh, it, It provides, I think, context, kind of wraps up some of the things that we were saying, And hopefully, maybe as a reminder for you, uh, if you're looking for material to go through, uh, the catechisms are very helpful. Uh, There are devotional thoughts that are provided with them. They're available online. And I would encourage you to uh, process through them because they are very much based on Scripture and the significance of um, what the Word of God has to say for us. So this is the devotional thought associated with, again, question 23, Why must the Redeemer be truly God? This is what they say. We often like to focus on the human aspects of Jesus. It's important to remember that Jesus was fully human, but he was also fully God. What does it mean that Jesus was fully God, and why is it so important that he, as our Redeemer, be truly God? The Apostle John opens his gospel by declaring that Jesus is the eternal Word in flesh. He explains In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In his letter to the Colossians, the Apostle Paul wrote, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Similarly, Jesus himself numerous times affirmed his divinity and that he was one with the Father. On one occasion, some of his listeners understood that he was claiming, tried to stone him, explaining that they were stoning him, not for any good work, but for blasphemy. You being a man, make yourself God, John 10, 33. The book of Revelation describes Jesus as the Alpha and Omega, the one who was, and is, and is to come. Indeed, he is no mere man. He is truly God. So why is it so important that Jesus, our Redeemer, be truly God? Here's the answer. For our sin was committed against God. Only God can forgive a transgression against himself. Let me read that one more time. Our sin was committed against God. God. Only God can forgive a transgression against himself. This is why some of the religious leaders in Jesus' day were so horrified when he said he forgave sins. They understood the implications of what he said. How could a mere man forgive sins? We have sinned against God. A mere man can't, but God can. Jesus needed to be fully human in order to be our substitute, but he needed to be fully God in order for his obedience and suffering to be perfect and for God's justice to be completely and eternally satisfied. We celebrate a risen Savior, but we recognize in doing that the, truly human, the true humanity of God, but, of, of Jesus, but the true divinity of Jesus as well. And so our encouragement from the book of John, right, from the gospel of John, my encouragement to us this morning is what is our response Okay, Jesus claims to be God. That's important because if we, if God did not die on the cross, then we're still in our sins. And so, so what do we do? Well, throughout the book, there's this theme of belief, right? Our, re, our, our response is as simple as belief and response to the work of Jesus Christ. So may we be a people who affirm the words of John the Baptist that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And through that belief may we rejoice in our good shepherd who says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hands. That is our response to the person of Jesus Christ and the significance of the work that he did on our behalf on the cross. Uh, Seth and the team are going to come up, make their way back to the stage here. As they do, I just encourage you, Uh, To take a couple minutes, right, Uh, lest we think that this is just a conversation that Jesus had with Jews 2,000 years ago, my encouragement is to, is your view of Jesus really, truly, actually a biblical view of who he is? Do we have expectations of the Messiah that are not biblical? Do we expect Jesus to do certain things in our lives that actually place us at the center instead of placing God at the center. I think that is worth thinking through today. So ask yourself, do you truly believe? And are you truly sitting under the authority of what Christ has said in his word? We're going to be singing, Be Thou My Vision, a great line in this song. Uh, one of the stanzas, High King of Heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall Still be my vision, O ruler of all. This, this victory that is offered is only offered because Jesus is truly God. So reflect on that for a moment before we sing, Then Seth and the team will lead us.